Good morning, ladies, and here we are, our very last parable in this study, and, and what an interesting one. You can see, I'll direct your attention to the photo on the screen. On July 29th, 1981, Lady Diana Spencer was married to His Royal Highness Prince Charles, who we all know was the eldest son of Queen Elizabeth II. The wedding was held in St. Paul's Cathedral in London, England. And it was scheduled for 11.20 a.m. British local time. And I want to tell you, that was 6.20 a.m. West Virginia local time because that's where I was on the morning of July 29, 1981. And I remember very distinctly watching with my mom before I headed off to work that day. I was home from college for the summer, working as I did every summer at the good old savings and loan. Actually, as I did every summer and every fall break and every Christmas break and every spring break, I, I guess I was really a workaholic even back then. But as my mom was tackling the ironing and getting an early start on the ironing while she was watching and I was putting on my, my mascara, we were multitasking, but we were also watching the procession to the church and all those carriages carrying all the family. And it was like watching a real live version of Cinderella. It was a fairy tale wedding, and many of you watched, and many of you remember that as well. Of course, many of you weren't even alive then, but that's, that's another thing. But worldwide, people were fascinated with the courtship and the impending nuptials of Charles and Diana. Deemed the wedding of the century, it was watched by 750 million people. Hundreds of cheering fans lined the streets as Lady Diana was driven to St. Paul's Cathedral in a horse-drawn glass carriage. Charles was carried in a gold-encrusted open coach, the one that's actually pictured here, that also delivered the couple to Buckingham Palace for the wedding banquet after the ceremony. Now, all those people lined the streets, all of them watched, on, watched online, watched on television, we didn't have online back then. But 3,500 lucky people received an invitation to the wedding that included a personalized enclosure like this one, which coincidentally now resides with a collector in Florida. <laughs> so, but of those 3,500 invited guests that got to go in and watch the ceremony, only 120 were privileged and special enough to receive an invite to the wedding banquet that would take place after at Buckingham Palace. Well, ladies, even more spectacular than the wedding banquet at Buckingham Palace after this royal wedding is the wedding banquet that we can all look forward to in heaven one day. That feast is the subject of the parable shared by Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. And I want to invite you to stand with me as we read the, that passage aloud in preparation for our teaching this morning. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, 
The wedding, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Ladies, thank you for honoring God's word. You may be seated. Would you just pray with me as we begin? Father, we ask for the enabling and the equipping and the enlightening of your Holy Spirit as we unpack the truth from this parable. Jesus, thank you for the way you use parables and stories to teach us. And may we receive the teaching that you have for us today from your holy word. And may we be faithful to be obedient to the truth that you convict us with. And Father, we just ask for hearts and minds that will be receptive to not just soak up knowledge, but to be committed, grown-up, mature women of God who are working out our salvation and determined to live out the truth that you reveal. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, the parable of the wedding banquet was one of the very last parables shared by our Lord while he was on this planet in his earthly body. It was delivered during that last week leading up to his crucifixion. And his audience, of course, included the chief priests and the Pharisees who had already played the role of judge and jury because they had already decided that they would plot for his death and how they could figure out a way to have him arrested and killed. Jesus used this teaching as of course he did every parable, to unfold powerful truth that's wrapped up in an interesting story. And what a story he has for us this week. The cast includes some interesting characters and a lot of drama. We have a rich king. We have a betrothed prince. We have all the drama of all these guests that have been invited to the royal wedding banquet that are first indifferent, and then they're mocking, and then they're finally murderous. And then we see a city destroyed in judgment. And finally, we end up by seeing the doors to the banquet hall thrown wide open to invite everyone in. And then it all wraps up with this one final zinger, a wedding crasher who declines the appropriate wedding attire provided by the host. That guy ends up getting thrown out into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. As with all the parables that we have studied, there's a great deal of symbolism here in this story that Jesus unpacked with his listeners then and still has powerful truth for us today. The king, of course, represents God Almighty. And in a sense, when we read this parable, there might just be a little part of us, ladies, that feels just a bit uneasy in this particular parable as we see the king representing God. Because we want to always think of God as being loving and compassionate and merciful. And we see here the king doling out some judgment, leveling that city, and then throwing that wedding crasher out into the darkness. But what we have to realize is that we're seeing God's complete character. We see his love and his mercy, but also his judgment on display in this parable. His son is, represents the Lord Jesus Christ. The bride is, is not seen here, but of course it's a wedding, so a bride is alluded to. And of course the bride of Christ is, represents the, the body of Christ. And of course the bride will not really come forth until Pentecost with the birth of the church following the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
Some suggest, some commentators that I read in, in preparation for today, that the servant issuing the invitation represents the Holy Spirit. And I thought that was interesting because certainly even in our day, the Holy Spirit is the one that does the prodding and the convicting and the enabling as we share the gospel and issue the invitation to come. And when we studied the book of Acts, we saw clearly the working of the Holy Spirit through the apostles, the, the disciples that had been with Jesus, and then later the apostle Paul as they took that invitation out after Jesus' death to the Jew first and then eventually to the Gentiles. And embracing the symbolism of the Holy Spirit representing the servant makes the story even more interesting because then we have all three members of the Godhead represented in one of the, in this parable that Jesus shared. So, but then when we take a, a more broader historical view, we could even see and note that the holy the servants are represented by the prophets that God had sent all throughout Jewish history, all throughout the Old Testament to speak truth to his people. The servant could be represented by John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, who even pointed people to Jesus and called Jesus the bridegroom in John 3.29. In modern day times, the servants issuing the invitation are certainly missionaries that are out there on the field, but also can be you and I and everyday normal Christians who invite others to the wedding banquet, the, anyone who shares the gospel. Well, we're going to discuss the wedding crusher thoroughly in a few minutes, but he represents those, I believe, who foolishly believe their filthy rags are going to get them into heaven. Weddings in the first century included a two-part invitation. So that tells us that save the dates aren't such a novel thing in the 21st century. They existed a long time ago. The first invitation would go out announcing that there would be a wedding feast, and then the second invitation would be sent saying, dinner is ready and it's time to come. Well, when the king sent the servant forth, the word used in our various translations may differ. But the NIV, for example, uses the word invited, while the King James Version uses the word bidden. But it, they all come from the Greek word kaleo. Now, when I hear the word bidden in the King James versus the word invited in the NIV, it just seems like more of an imperative to come, doesn't it? And so when I looked up the Greek, the, the definition of that Greek word kaleo, it means to call someone in order that he may come or go somewhere. It's to call forth, to summon. So the Israelites were called here. Jesus, in this parable, the king is, they were, they were, he was bidding these people to come. There was an imperative here. And throughout the Old Testament, the Israelites had been bidden by the prophets. The Holy Spirit did the calling after Calvary. John the Baptist did the calling to point people to Jesus. And of course, our Lord Jesus Christ himself, while he was here on earth in his earthly form during his ministry, he called people to himself. He bid people to come to him. Well, as the story unfolds, Three invitations were given. And so we're going to examine these three invitations individually. Invitation number one. The first invite goes out, and it is recorded in verse three. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet, so they had already gotten the save the date already. He sent the invitation out to tell them to come, but it says they refused to come. We don't get a lot of details. They just declined the invitation with no real explanation given. It seems 
that they were just indifferent. They abstained from it, accepting the king's invitation. They heard, they heard, but they refused to come. You and I probably have many people in our lives that would fall into this category who they just seem indifferent to the gospel. They just sort of shrug their shoulders. They're just not interested. And so the second invitation goes out, and it was extended and recorded in verses 4 to 6. Then he sent some more servants, and he said, Tell those who have been invited that I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention, and they went off, one to his field, another to his business. And then it says that even the rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. Now, the wording of this invitation seems a little more urgent because dinner is ready. It's time to come. It's time to come. I bid you come. This time, the servant issuing the invitation is not met with indifference, but with contempt. There's mocking. There's scorn. There's some pushback. For these folks, uh, it seems that their business is more important. There are other things that they have to do. They've got farms to take care of, and, and certainly... We know people who, who make their work a priority or make their children's sports schedules a priority. They can't miss their TV show. Their workout schedule cannot be compromised. Everything or anything is more important than coming to accepting the invitation to come. But it also spirals down very quickly from scorn and mocking and indifference to to not just declining the invitation, not just showing contempt and scorn, but to actually, we we, we have this verbal abuse, but then it even cycles downward to physical abuse. The situation becomes ugly and violent and even murderous, and they end up killing the messenger that brought the invitation. And certainly throughout the history of the church, there have been those saints who died as martyrs, who issued the invitation to come, and they lost their physical lives for their obedience. Verse 7 records the serious consequences because the king, when he hears what happened, doles out judgment. Verse 7 says the king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their cities. The king's righteous judgment is clearly on display here. Scholars believe that this parable... It's also prophetic as Jesus is pointing forward in time to the leveling of the temple and the judgment upon Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans that would come in A.D. 70. This is many years after, after his death and resurrection, of course. So we've had two invitations issued. We've had two invitations rejected with increasingly violent responses. But the king is relentless. He will not give up. He is going to have that banquet to honor his son with guests in attendance. And so he issues that third invitation. And for this third invitation, he instructs his servants, go out to the street corners. Go invite everybody. Anybody that you can find, everybody gets to come. There are no prerequisites. And the result is recorded for us in verse 10. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find the bad as well as the good. Did that, stri- that phrase strike you? The bad as well as the good. And some of us are a combination. I guess all of us are a combination of bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. That was what the king desired. He wanted that wedding hall and that wedding banquet to be filled with a celebration of joy to celebrate his son. 
After invitation number one and invitation number two are both declined and refused and rejected and even met with violence, the king demonstrates his divine mercy as he now sends forth invitations to everyone, good and bad. There is no prerequisite for this party. Of course, this symbolizes the invitation for the gospel message, that the gospel is available to all, that the doors are thrown wide open and all are welcome, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, men and women, old and young, black and white, everyone is welcome to come to the banquet because the gospel is indeed for all people. Now, all the guests have arrived. Everyone is there to celebrate. The wedding banquet has begun, and then the wedding crasher is discovered. There's a guest there who's sticking out like a sore thumb because he is not wearing the appropriate wedding garments. My research tells me, and I think this was also mentioned in our daily questions, that most likely the host to the wedding party in that culture would provide the appropriate attire for each guest. And really, even in our modern-day society, there is attire that is appropriate for some occasions. Even, even in our modern-day society that's become so casual with everything, there are certain occasions that we certainly know what's what when it comes to the way we are to dress. If, if you and I were invited to a royal wedding, we most likely would not show up wearing cutoffs and flip-flops. And if you attend a funeral, you probably aren't going to walk in there wearing a bathing suit and barefooted. So we all know that, that there are certain ways that are appropriate to dress, even in our casual modern-day society. So this particular guest that shows up, uh, while all the appropriate attire has been provided, he refuses to wear it. He has decided not to wear the wedding garments. And this is more than just a social faux pas. It's not just an oversight. It's not just that he didn't have the appropriate clothes because they had been provided for him. This is an act of rebellion. What he is actually saying is, what I'm wearing is just fine. I don't need your clothes. And when he essentially declares that in pride and arrogance, what he's doing is making his own rules for the party. He is essentially in the same position as those that have refused to come. They rejected the invitation altogether. He has come, but he's refusing to put on what is appropriate to be there. The wedding garment in this parable is symbolic of laying aside our garment of sin and self-righteousness and putting on the righteous robe that he has provided for us. I love Herbert Lockyer's commentary on this. He said, every sinner must comply with the king's terms if they are to experience the king's grace. The king had indeed extended kindness and grace as his invitation went out to all, good and bad. They came with their filthy rags, but they were given a robe of righteousness for the banquet. You and I and every human being are all in that category. We are all invited in by his mercy and his grace. And we all come with filthy rags. We all come as sinners. We all come inappropriately dressed for the wedding banquet. Isaiah 61.10 says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. We don't come before God on the basis of our own righteousness. In fact, Scripture tells us that our righteousness is like filthy rags. 
the wedding crasher perhaps finally realized, but only when it was too late, because when he was confronted by the king, he had no answer. Did you notice that he was silent before the king because he's standing there in filthy rags and he's before the holy righteous king. He is without excuse and without explanation for his actions at that point. And ladies, it's as if we are standing before a holy and righteous and perfect God wearing our filth. We are unfit to be in his presence. But God, in his kindness, in his love, in his mercy, has provided everything we need to be there because he has given us that robe of righteousness through the sacrifice of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. All we need to do is accept that gift. We exchange our filthy rags for the garment of salvation that he offers. We yield our insufficiency and we receive his all-sufficiency. Our identity in Christ is our ticket into that banquet. The wedding crusher that came to the wedding party was actually saying, I want to come on my own merit. I don't think, I think the one I'm wearing is good enough. I don't need your righteousness because I have a righteousness of my own. And dear sisters, you know, I think there are going to be many people in Judgment Day who are planning to rely upon their own good works, who are going to think that what they've done is good enough. But on Judgment Day, they will be like that wedding crasher. They will be thrown out. There are many people that you and I have had conversations with who would say, well, I think when it comes to judgment, that, that God's going to get out some scale and, and he's going to sort of weigh all of our good deeds against our bad deeds, and I think it's going to be okay. And those people would be wrong. In fact, they would be dead wrong because that's not what Scripture teaches. At the end of time, it doesn't matter what you and I think or what we conjure up and create our own philosophy. We have to be clothed with his robe of righteousness. Anyone who rejects the Lord Jesus Christ is dead in their sin, dead in their filthy rags, when a garment of salvation is free and available. It's absolutely and completely free, but we must keep in mind that it costs the king his son. To receive it, you have to first acknowledge you need it. You have to relinquish and let go of and turn from your sin in order to receive his righteousness. Sin is the only thing that God can take from us, Oswald Chambers says. We have no goodness of our own to offer. But before we can lay hold and take hold of him and put on that garment, that righteous robe, we have to relinquish our sin. You see, I don't think we can simultaneously hold on to our righteous, to hold on to our filthy, our filthy rags and grab that robe of righteousness. We have to relinquish that sin. We have to hand it over, hand our filthy rags over. They are gone. We are sporting a new robe of righteousness. There are many that want to cling to that old life of sin. They want to have it both ways. They want to wear that filthy rag and still attend the banquet. And that, that doesn't mesh with the message of the gospel. The gospel means, the gospel begins with repentance. Repent and turn. We turn from our sin and, 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 and turn to him. Does that mean that Christians never sin? Well, of course not. But it doesn't mean that we are asking God to embrace our sin and, and to rubber stamp our sin and to wink at our sin. We as, as women of God who live in the flesh should mourn our sin. We should acknowledge that it was our sin that sent our Lord Jesus Christ to the cross. So as we look at this parable of the wedding banquet, we can ask ourselves, 
Who are you in this story? Or maybe it could spur a good conversation to ask a friend who we might share this story with. Who are you in this story? Are you the indifferent invitee? Are you uh, just passive, uninterested, shrugging your shoulders and going on and disregarding the marriage? I'm astounded when I see people who claim to be believers that are indifferent to the things of God. I, d I don't understand how that works. It, it makes no sense to me that you can wear the robe of righteousness and know that Jesus died for you, know that your destiny is eternity, and yet be indifferent to the things of, of the word, the things of God. Are you the busy or distracted invitee? And again, Christians can get distracted. But when, we, when it comes to, to salvation, the, the distracted invitee is the one that thinks that they're eventually going to make time for it. I'll, I'll get around to that someday. But right now, I just need to enjoy my life. I, I need to get my career advanced first. I need to get the kids raised. Or I need to finish school. There's always something or something else that, that's distracting me, that's taking a bigger priority. Are you the angry invitee? The one who's just sick and tired of people nagging you and wanting to talk to you about God and about Jesus all the time. You've, you've met some of those people. You may have some of them in your family. Have you, uh, and some of these people have maybe not physically attacked, but verbally attacked someone that is bringing that message. It, it, um, it might be that all of us are part of, and we are part of, the good and the bad that are showing up for supper. Are you counted among those who heard the invite and have, have shown up and been ushered in to wear that robe of righteousness? And are we wearing that robe of righteousness? And that, that should identify who we are. That's what makes us a woman of God, that we wear that robe of righteousness. But when we look at this list of all the different characteristics of the people that rejected the invitation, that should spur us on as women who wear the robe to love and to pray for those that need to know the love of Christ, that need to repent and turn from their sin. And we can celebrate that as, as those who know Jesus Christ, those who wear that righteous robe, that we are the woman of God and we are wearing that robe of, Christ, of righteousness. Do you know with certainty that you will be at the great wedding feast? If you are a woman of God, that robe of righteousness becomes yours on the day that you accepted Jesus. Your day of salvation was ushered in that, that new era on the day that you accepted him. Those filthy rags are gone, and they have been cast aside. But every single day since that time, you also make a conscious choice to live like the woman of God that you are, to accept Paul's challenge to the Colossians where he said, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. This is the working out of our salvation. This is the sanctification that comes after salvation. This is what happens as we cooperate with him daily. That righteous robe is perhaps seen as a coat of many collars. And those collars, according to this verse from Paul, are compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And perhaps the scarf, that perfect accessory that sort of ties the whole robe and the whole outfit together, 
Well, that's that love that he says at the end, which binds them all together. Over all those virtues put on love that binds everything together. Isn't it interesting that, that sandwiched in between this teaching in, this, in these couple of verses is that call to forgiveness again. It's so interesting how this ties in our conversation from last week with the parable of the unfaithful servant. But it's love that binds those things together. As, as women of God wearing the robe of righteousness, this should be what is seen in our lives. That's what we should look like here on earth as we await the call to heaven. As women of God, the character that we should most identify with in this story is the servant delivering the invitation. That should be who we are. The parable should challenge us to pray for the unsafe people in our lives. It should challenge us to, to do more than just be the nice girl or the good girl, uh, the woman that's polite and at, to everybody at the soccer field or in the neighborhood or at work or on the committee or always bring snacks for the PTO meeting. It, we should be also the girl that calls other people to dinner, to the wedding banquet, issuing that invitation to come. That girl that is sharing the gospel intentionally, seeing the urgency of making that happen. And I know, ladies, that that, that, that sounds scary, and it can sound overwhelming, because like the servant in this story, we might be met with indifference. We might be met with some scorn. We might be met with some verbal attacks. Well, you know what I think? If people respond that way to us, to our loving acts of kindness and invitation, then that's on them. But if we fail to issue the invitation, then that's on us. If we have the truth and we fail to share it, that's on us. We, but we must be wise in the way we do it. We have to be smart in the way we go about it. We can almost do more harm than good if we get on a soapbox and try to out-talk people and push our truth down their throats. We have to be smart. Some of you might say, well, I see from this parable that maybe I should, but how do I do that? Where do I begin? And I think you begin, first of all, by being a friend. You just pray for those opportunities. You love on people, but you can't just stop there. You have to move beyond just being that nice, good girl. We might ask God, we must ask God to open up room for us to have those gospel conversations. And we have to respectfully listen to what other people share so that we can have our turn to speak truth into their lives. I'm reading a, a book right now called God Space by Doug Pollock. And the subtitle is Where Spiritual Conversations Happen Naturally. And isn't that what we would want? To have those spiritual, gospel, life-giving conversations to just happen naturally and not be contrived? Well, in this book, Doug Pollock shares a story, and I'm sorry for the grainy image. I did the best I could to Google and find the name of this man. But it's a story about um, Lieutenant Colonel Christopher Hughes from Iraq in April 2003. And I'm, I'm just going to read the opening of this particular chapter to you. In April of 2003, National Public Radio aired a story about a standoff in Iraq between an angry mob of Shiites and a heavily armored patrol from the American 101st Airborne Division. Fearing that the soldiers were preparing to desecrate their holy shrine, hundreds of unarmed civilians pressed in towards the soldiers, waving their hands and shouting defiantly. Although the patrol's intentions were peaceful, the standoff would probably have been disastrous, 
disastrous if not for the quick thinking of U.S. Lieutenant Colonel Christopher Hughes. Hughes, who was in command that day, picked up a loudspeaker and barked out three simple commands to his troops. First, he told them, take a knee. Second, to point their weapons toward the ground. And finally, to look up and give everyone in the hostile crowd a friendly smile. Astoundingly, in a few moments after they obeyed his order, the troops saw the demeanor of the crowd change. Hostility and defiance melted away as smiles and friendly pats on the back replaced shaking fists and screaming voices. Isn't that amazing how he was able to completely ratchet down and, and take down the tone of that violence? That angry mob pelting and angry and pressing in when they only wanted to come with a message of peace. It's a, it's a great metaphor for what happens when we try to reach a hurting world. We come with a message of peace and we're met with scorn and ridicule and anger. And so we have to begin by loving people. We have to begin by extending kindness, having that be our motivation. The, book, the text goes on to say, though it may not be immediately apparent, this story has important implications for spiritual conversations in a world that is becoming increasingly hostile to the traditional kinds of conversations Christians attempt to have. As author Ravi Zacharias says, we must learn to find the back door to people's hearts because the front door is heavily guarded. It seems the culture has changed dramatically. People are antagonistic to the gospel. People do become angry. But we have to be true to the gospel message. We have to pray, begin by loving people. We have to begin by extending kindness and find that back door into their hearts, as Ravi says. We need to pray and ask God Almighty to open those doors. And as he is faithful to do that, we can pray that the Holy Spirit will put his words on our tongue, his thoughts in our minds, and his love in our hearts so that we can respond in a way that is appropriate. We have to be true to the gospel message. We don't need to water this down. We need to not be ashamed that our God is a God of judgment as well as a God of love. We can't fluff away the hard stuff. We have to share the truth. We have to be true to the gospel message and true to who God is. The parable of the wedding banquet certainly puts God's character on display, and that's the response. That, that's how we need to carry forth the truth as well. We can take a leaf out of the book of Colonel Hughes. We can take a knee, and that means that we can pray in humility. We can serve. We can listen. We can honor those that seem to come at us with hostility. We can lower our guns. And that means that we don't need to be, um, we, we don't need to be intimidated. We don't need to be confrontational. We don't need to push back. We can lower our voice and pray for cool heads and calmness. We can be smart. And, and then finally, we can smile. We have the joy of the Lord. We have every reason to be the most joyful people that walk on the planet. But the parable of the wedding banquet does show the character of God. And I want to hit this truth before we wrap up because I think it's a key thing to note that in this parable, we do see that God is a God of mercy and love because he threw open the door and invited all to come in. He provided the garments. The king represents God Almighty. We see his love and his mercy. Good and bad were invited in. All were invited. 
But we also, ladies, we also see in here that he is a God of judgment and righteousness. We see that there are consequences for those who reject him and for those who try to manufacture their own form of righteousness. Those who show up in the filthy rags and arrogantly think that's good enough. You know, when it comes to looking at God's character, at his mercy and his love versus his judgment and his righteousness, I have an inkling that all of us sort of lean one way or the other. We may see God more as that righteous God of judgment, or we may see him more as a God of love and compassion and mercy. But the reality is that it's like two sides of the same coin. He is one and the same. He encompasses both. God is great and God is good. And that's a great segue into our study next year as we anticipate studying Romans. God sets a high standard, a standard of perfection, but then he provides the cross as our way to reach it. So as we behold who God is in this parable, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given for her to wear. You know, you and I may never receive an invitation to a royal wedding, but we've been invited to one even better. Have you accepted the invitation? Are you wearing the robe of righteousness freely given to you? And are you lovingly and joyfully inviting all the other good and the bad people in your life to come as well? Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that he has put eternity in their hearts. I think people really do hunger and thirst for those gospel conversations. I think they really do ponder their own mortality. And I believe that as we watch the news and even the things happening right now with this virus and things that that are going on and, and people are anxious, that our great God can use even that for his glory. Because that can be our back door into having those conversations about eternity, those gospel conversations, those spiritual conversations that have that might have people open and receptive to a conversations that a conversation that they would not have otherwise. Women of God, let's pray. Let's wear our robe of righteousness, but let's be sure that we are that faithful servant inviting others to come in and accept the invitation to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ so that they too can join us for the wedding banquet. Pray with me. Father, thank you for our salvation. Thank you that our destiny is eternity because our identity is is in Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you for suffering a horrific death that we can wear that robe of righteousness. Thank you for taking away our filthy rags and letting us know that our place in heaven is secure. Forgive us for keeping our mouths closed when we had an opportunity to open it. And Father, I just pray now that that each one of us in this room would begin to pray for those opportunities, those open doors, whether they're the back door or the front door, to have those gospel conversations. And Holy Spirit, would you be faithful to put your words in our tongue, your thoughts in our mind, and your love in our hearts for people in our world, people in in our sphere of influence who desperately need to know you. Thank you, God that you are always faithful for what you call us to do. We thank you and praise you for the privilege of being your daughters and for the privilege of pointing others to you. In Jesus' name, amen.